Welcome to the Mental Training Lab. I'm Pete Kadushin, your host, and my job is to have fun conversations that leave you with actionable tools, little experiments that will help you improve your mindset and mental skills so that you can do the things you love at a higher level. Today's deep dive is going to be aimed at unpacking a phenomenon I call holding your best performance hostage. This idea was touched on briefly in my interview with Dr. Ashwin Patel, and it's worth exploring with a bit more time and space. We'll start by unpacking what I exactly mean by holding your best performance hostage. We'll talk about why it is that our brains and our minds actually go to this place and build these unproductive habits. And then we're going to close with what to do when it comes to noticing this happening in real time, and then what you can be doing instead, how to actually unwind these habits and give yourself the opportunity to perform your best when it matters most. To set the stage, I've got a story. I first remember seeing this in action while traveling with a high-level track and field club. The morning of a big regional race, we all went downstairs to have breakfast at the hotel, and the scene that unfolded next was both surprising and also surprisingly common. One of the runners, who was a favorite in one of the races that day, was sitting at a table, quietly receding into a corner as if they might just disappear. Couldn't figure out what was going on since this was pretty out of character. I wondered if it was the expectations or some other internal pressure. Maybe there was a a nagging injury we didn't know about. It was oatmeal. I found out later that day that the hotel didn't have the right oatmeal, and that in that moment, the runner had decided, based on body language and later based on what I saw in performance, that they simply couldn't win without the right fuel that morning. Now, from the outside looking in, it was almost enough to make me want to laugh. After years of building up base mileage, of off-season training, of recovering, of eating, of sleeping to optimize performance, how could the absence of steel-cut oats derail a performance in the blink of an eye? It turns out, the more I examined my own experiences as a performer, and the more I worked in the world of performance psychology, the more I realized that these subtle and sometimes not-so-subtle demands are everywhere, and they affect all of us. Over time, it started to feel a little bit like a movie. One part of us is on the phone, the negotiator working to get our best performance let out to play on the big day, and the other part of us is running down a list of all the demands that must be fulfilled before we're going to give ourselves permission to excel. The truth is, if it's not steel-cut oats, it's something else. It's a good night's sleep or having a smooth warm-up or wearing the right socks or getting a good first shot or not experiencing any nerves or doubts leading up to competition, supportive teammates, coaches that are cheering for us, having parents in the stands, not having parents in the stands. All of these things might be on your list of qualities or conditions that you demand prior to deciding that you can perform your best. Now, you get the picture. What this all means is that we create over time a narrow, rigid window of the conditions where we can play our best. And we use all of these signals leading up to a game or performance to determine the quality of our decision-making, of our attention and our energy, and then ultimately, our effort and our belief in our ability. So for the rest of the episode, we're going to tackle why we do this to ourselves, and then what we can do to notice our own hostage-taking, and then how we can begin to shift our behaviors and habits to help us let our best performance free not just on the days where it's easy, but especially on the days where the pressure is on and we really want to deliver. So first up, why would we, as performers, who have to execute at a high level in complex and uncertain situations, create a process that actually narrows our capacity to perform and makes us more rigid and less adaptable over time? 
I think the answer lies in our unique power as human beings to be able to fortune tell. Now, I'm not talking about the red curtain tent at the carnival with the crystal ball inside. I'm talking about our evolutionary capacity to look forward and see different futures spreading out in front of our mind's eye. Now, this is really useful for survival since we want to be able to pick up on early warning signals and figure out what that will all mean, whether it's a few seconds or a few minutes later. We know what this looks like. Thunder in the distance, we can extrapolate into the future and we know that we need to get indoors, right? Or a buddy tells us that there's a saber-toothed tiger that lives over around the way, we know to avoid that cave. This is all super useful when survival is on the line. And this same mechanism, when overused, ends up getting in the way as much as it helps facilitate success. So how do we go from foretelling our physical safety to holding our best performance hostage? When we get into uncertain, complex situations where there are stakes, whether they're real or imagined, we feel like there's something on the line. Whether it's a job interview or asking someone out on a date or standing over the last PK in the World Cup, there feels like both an opportunity and a threat. And there's a part of our brain that's always on safety patrol, peering into the future to see if there are any threats coming down the pipeline. What happens if I botch the interview? What happens if I get rejected when I ask her out on a date? What if I ring my kick off the post and our team loses? And we don't want these to happen. And the experience when they do, or if they do, can be so profound and so painful that our brain lays down some rules. A lot like the first time you touched a hot stove, and hopefully the last time, your brain remembers very quickly and very clearly what not to do again. So whatever you did leading up to the interview, or whatever ritual you had leading up to that penalty kick, gets associated with a negative outcome, and that can start to trip our threat detection software the next time and the time after that. Our brain responds similarly, although not as strongly, to good outcomes as well. You win the game with that last kick, and your brain imprints the meal you had in the morning, the conversation you might have had with your uncle before kickoff, and then the breathing pattern you happen to do during halftime. And when you layer this over and over and over, practice after practice and game after game, you eventually end up with a complex web of rules and conditions that signal your brain that good things are going to happen or bad things are going to happen. When we look at it this way, the story from earlier might actually make some sense. If you're that runner and in the past you've had trouble with GI issues over the course of a race and that tummy trouble has meant poor performances, then you're going to be hypersensitive to anything that might potentially give your intestines some trouble. It's not too far a leap then in a mind that's already preoccupied with getting ready for an important race to assume that the hotel oats sitting right in front of you are going to be responsible for your poor showing that afternoon. But here's the challenge. We have all experienced times when this hasn't come true. You've been nervous before a big meeting and it ended up going great. Or you ate that ritual meal right before the, uh, the race and you ended up not having a great race. Or you hit the ball terribly on the golf range and went out and played lights out on the course. Right? There's plenty of examples where we assumed that the future was going to go the way that we thought and then it didn't. So what do we do next? I want to address the elephant in the room really quick. Some of you listening may be feeling a little resistant. And for all of us, these rules and conditions feel very true. And in my experience, performers don't actually really want to give these up. And I'm myself included. There's a feeling of certainty that comes with all these rules and conditions. And since we collectively, as human beings, get very uncomfortable when things are uncertain, we'll often opt for assuming something bad's going to happen instead of resting with the uncertainty that comes within the context of trying to perform at your best. 
This gets coupled with the desire for control. When we don't have certainty, we look for all the buttons and levers on the control panel that we can play with. And this is why so many athletes have superstitions around how to put on their gear or how their day needs to unfold leading up to a performance. Now, some pre-performance rituals or routines have positive and practical implications for your readiness to perform, but others are there just to be a safety blanket for your anxiety as you marinate in the uncertainty when the performance is still just hours away. And so the first thing that you need to be willing to do is to let go of these assumptions and rules that you have. And it goes both ways. You have to uncouple your fortune-telling signals around the good performances too. This means leaning into and learning to deal with the physical and mental and emotional experience of having less control and less certainty. And now you're wondering, if you're going to be asked to do all that, right, to get rid of the safety blanket, to let go of these assumptions that things are either going to go well or go poorly, what's the actual upside? The upside here is that you expand your window where your best performance can take place. It means that more often you're going to perform at a higher level, on average, asterisk, right? Like I can't guarantee anything. But practically, what it means is that a bad first play doesn't spell defeat, or a stumble over the first couple of words in a presentation doesn't mean that everything is going to tank. It also means that you can be freed up when things are going well, too. The same system that's hunting for threats when stuff might go poorly gets turned on when things seem to be going a little too well. And suddenly a mistake appears to help drag your performance back in line with your expectations. What I'm really describing here is the capacity to rest in the present moment with all of your skills available to you, ready to act and react in the ways that you've trained over countless of hours of preparation without that extra layer of thought trying to jump in the way and say, hey, look out for this or hey, look out for that or I'm pretty sure things aren't going to go the way you want today. Now, if you've ever heard anyone say, oh, you know, so-and-so, they would be so good if they could just get their mind out of their way or get out of their own way. This is really what they're talking about and whether they know it or not. So to start loosening this up, I often ask clients to remember a time where they were nervous or nauseous or anxious or sore or hungry or feeling low energy leading into a big performance, and then the performance went well anyway. Now, this starts to shake loose the logical piece of the puzzle. They can start to see from a distance that their assumptions are often wrong And they're often putting them in a position where they're going to feel less confident and more doubtful and end up performing worse. Which is great, but there's still the emotional and physical side of the coin. And to do that, we need more than just logical reflection. Here, I think imagery can be really helpful. To add some juice to this practice, I'll ask an athlete to close their eyes and then put themselves back in that place in that time before a game where they remember fortune telling. I'll ask them to recall what it felt like in their body, uh, what feelings they were experiencing, and if they can relive that experience in vivid detail. And they often recall the discomfort, the pre-disappointment, and that feeling of frustration or despair at having assumed that things are going to go poorly before they've even gotten off the ground. Now, if you're familiar with Dr. Judd Brewer's work around addiction and mental habits, or if you've read the book Unwinding Anxiety... You know what we're trying to accomplish here is to bring a high degree of attention to the experience so that we can feel how unhelpful the behaviors actually are. We start retrospectively because it's really tough to dial up that level of mindful awareness in the moment at first. Over time, though, clients begin to notice their hostage taking in real time as it's happening. As they're getting out of the car before practice, they'll feel the heaviness in their legs and almost instantly they'll hear at the same time that voice that says, oh, well, today's not going to be very good. 
They can pay attention to then how their body tightens up, how their attention gets redirected to thoughts and feelings that confirm that conclusion, and that how if that goes unchecked, they're going to have a worse practice. And that worse practice can turn into two, which can lead into a bad race, and so on and so forth. Dr. Brewer points out that the reason we want to bring a high quality of present moment attention to the experience in our bodies as these things are unfolding is because our brain really needs to shift the reward value. We do these things because they feel rewarding on some level. And we talked earlier about the fact that our fortune-telling system keeps us alive, which is pretty dang valuable. What we need to do is teach our brain and our body that although it's useful in some contexts, it's actually keeping us from performing at our highest level in these moments. This also unlocks our ability to be a little more compassionate with ourselves. Right? You catch yourself holding your best performance hostage again, and rather than getting frustrated and judgmental, you can instead see this as an opportunity to rewrite that reward value in real time, to bring your attention to what's actually going on in your body and in your mind, and really identifying whether or not that's productive. Is it helping unlock your best performance, or is it actually getting in the way? Now, if you want to supercharge your awareness building here, if you really want to start rewiring these reward values in real time a little bit faster, you can journal. And if you're willing to journal after each practice or game, or if you're not an athlete, if you're willing to do this after each rep you have within your performance domain, and it's going to allow you to raise your attention level so that those automatic thoughts and feelings, the stuff that's been flying under the surface, they, those get pulled out into the light and you can start to inspect them for their true value. This can be as simple as writing down your thought process leading up to a practice or a game and then figuring out what signals you were using to draw those conclusions. This allows you to start teasing out the moments where you've narrowed your window of performance and you can be ready for when your brain starts to make those conclusions the next time. To make this a little more concrete, let's circle back around to the runner and the oats. Now let's assume that they've done the work and they've built some awareness and they can see those thoughts emerging as they sit at the breakfast table. They can recognize these unproductive thoughts, and it's still only the first step. Now, it would be tempting for this athlete to want to fight thinking with more thinking, to start logically defending why it's simply not true that eating the wrong oats right now will lead to poor performance later. The issue with this strategy is that it just keeps cranking up the thinking system. And part of that system is the threat detection software that we mentioned earlier. And so in an effort to actually step out of the unproductive cycle, they may actually just be spinning it a little faster. I think the move here instead is to reset, and specifically to reset the nervous system. By dodging the mind and going through the body, by getting down below your neck, you can step outside of your mind and you have the opportunity to not have to get into that whole back and forth as you try and convince yourself or prove to yourself one fact or the other. Now, my reset, my go-to technique is usually one to three rounds of deep breathing. It's quick, you can do it undercover, you don't have to be conspicuous about it, and it plugs directly into our nervous system. And so those rounds of deep breathing, it's going to be in through the nose, out through the nose. You're going to want a longer exhale than inhale, and all of that so that you can ramp up your parasympathetic nervous system, that rest and digest system. Right? And in just one to three breaths, you're actually going to shift your activation and that allows your attentional system to disengage that one target, which is usually the thoughts or the thought habits that are cranking you up. And it gives you the opportunity to then shift your attention to something different. And that becomes step three. That last step is to refocus on a different target. 
Now, this is something that works best if you've identified in advance what that target is. Because if you recognize an unproductive thought and then you reset physiologically, but then you don't have anywhere for your attention to go, then it's just going to drift back to where you started. Now, one way that I really like to anchor this refocus point is to spend some time clarifying values in advance. Values are really powerful because they're generally very personal and they generally will drive a lot of energetics. We want and are motivated to live our values. And so for many of the performers I work with, hard work, a positive attitude, being relentless in the face of obstacles, right, all of those, and also being a good teammate tend to be values that are high on their list. And each of these presents a different opportunity for where to refocus attention. So if we want to end our story, this runner could have, after noticing the unproductive fortune telling that was going on over breakfast, decided to follow that with a breathing script on their phone when they got back up to their hotel room to help relax their nervous system. And you know, it doesn't even have to be that complicated. You could really just do one to three deep breaths. And then after that, they could have gone and spent some time and reconnected with teammates and focused, or refocused in this case, on ways to engage the group and help others get ready for their big race as well. The three R's, recognize, reset, and refocus, can be applied in a lot of different ways and a lot of different areas. When it comes to freeing yourself up from the hostage situation that's happening between your ears, you have the opportunity to first start with journaling and awareness building. You can pair this with imagery so that you can live or relive the experience and really recognize the reward value, and in this case, the lack of reward value for some of these thought habits. And in the moment then, after you've done that pre-work, you can apply the three R's to help unlock a higher level of performance in a wider window of performance conditions. Whew, okay. As always, we still only scratch the surface and hopefully this has given you plenty to think about and hopefully plenty to do when it comes to letting your own best performance free on the big stage. I'm going to leave it here with a thank you to everyone who's been listening and supporting the show. You can find me on Instagram at alldaydrk, that's alldaydr.k, and you can find more of these episodes either by going to mtl.academy or visiting your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening, and be well.